0: very warm welcome to the Understanding Users podcast, brought to you by Researchable UX. It's great to have you with me. I'm your host, Mike Green. I'm a freelance user research lead and digital consultant based in the UK. Over the coming weeks, I'm going to be chatting to various digital experts who I've had the pleasure of working with in recent years. They're from various disciplines, including user research, UX design, development, and product management. And they'll even be a digital business owner or two. I'll be talking to them about how they came to be in their current roles, what they've learned along the way, and what advice they may have for others getting into the field. These are intended to be relaxed, informal chats with professionals who are keen to share their experiences, so sit back and enjoy. In this episode of Understanding Users, Steve talks of the unique production environment of computer games, along with the varying UX maturity levels sometimes evident in that industry and the implication that both of these have on how computer games user research is planned and carried out. He discusses the importance of being able to conduct both generative and evaluative research during games development, and the challenge, familiar to many UX teams, of ensuring that user insights are acknowledged and taken on board by product teams in their product roadmaps. Finally, he plays my three-card challenge to share his favorite UX tool, favorite technique, and a trend he sees or would like to see in the future. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So today, uh, I'm talking to Steve Bromley, who is a, a man of many talents, wears many hats. He's a lead user researcher. He's an author. He's a speaker. And uh, I'm really excited to talk to him. So welcome to the show, Steve.
1: Oh, Thank you for inviting me, Mike. I'm really excited to be here today. So tell
0: me, uh, Steve, a little bit about what you're up to at the moment uh, and what your sort of day-to-day, week-to-week work
1: looks like. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so a lot of what I'm very active in and a lot of what I, I talk about a lot is is games user research, running user research for the development of video games. Um, What that looks like is I I wrote a book on it uh, last year called How to Be a Games User Researcher, which built on a lot of uh, the work I've been doing with a mentoring programme over the previous five years to help people get established in this field. Uh, Alongside helping people join the field, I also work with game teams to both run play tests or help them run better play tests. And to establish user research as a function in how they make their games or how they're developing, developing video games. It's not the only thing I do. I also have a second role outside of video games, and I work with a, a tech company to lead a research team and, and do all typical usability, uh, sorry, user research activities like discovery research, usability testing, and and running a research team. Fascinating.
0: So I'm interested to know how mature would you say is games user research as opposed to more traditional kind of digital products and services uh, research?
1: I think that's a a great question and an interesting challenge for uh, video game user research. So I would say most companies, it's a very low maturity. We're lucky if they recognize the value of evaluative testing and, and testing the things they're making before they launch it. Game development is a a very high-pressure development environment, so they're obviously under a lot of time pressure, and it can be difficult to make the case for even doing usability testing as you're developing games, let alone what you'd recognise from more general tech as discovery research or generative research, things to inspire design decisions. One of the challenges I, I think games has is ultimately it's a creative medium and you're making a piece of art. Uh, in, in a video game. And a lot of people who are there are me- are there because it is a creative thing to make. And just like it'd be very difficult to run discovery research to inspire uh, painting the Mona Lisa, it's a similar challenge to work out how do we translate understanding user needs into the design decisions that our designers have to make. I don't think that's impossible. And I think it's a really interesting area that we want to be exploring. But I don't think the industry is there yet, and I don't see a huge amount of of work being done in that space. Fascinating.
0: We'll come back to some of that in a minute. But first, if I could just get you to step back in your career, I'm interested to know, uh, given how varied the road is for so many of us in this world, uh, how did you get to where you got to now, Steve?
1: Yes. So almost by chance, I ended up at university studying human-centered computing, which is a mixture of usability and psychology and and all the things that often lead to a UX career. And that was at Sussex University. And one of the lecturers there was uh, Graham McAllister, who ran the first games user research agency inside the UK, possibly inside the world, because he was obviously very interested in that. And during his course, he explained, you can do user research on video games. You can look at the usability of it. You can see if players understand it. You can do things like balancing the difficulty. I I was, became aware this exists and this is a thing that you could do. I'd obviously grown up playing things like Nintendo 64 and and the Sega Mega Drive. Uh, and so it was quite interesting video games. And so I immediately latched on, worked with Graham on some projects for local Brighton uh, game studios, did my own independent work to contact indie developers and say, hey, can I look at the usability of your game and can I help you find some issues? And and they were very enthusiastic about that. All of that rolled up into when I was leaving university, uh, PlayStation were looking for a junior games user research role and I applied and very luckily got it. Uh, PlayStation was a really nice place to learn how to be a games user researcher. They're an established team. They had lots of very strong researchers there who had very uh, good ideas about what research practice should look like. And I think it was there I really learned my craft of what is a user researcher like in in game development. Right.
0: And and you've also worked, uh, I know, for the UK government in a kind mm-hmm. of public sector roles as well. I'm interested to know, you sort of touched on the high-pressure environment of, of yeah. games. What are the kind of key differences in terms of doing user research for, let's say, one of the sort of large Whitehall Ministries and services mm-hmm. being delivered there as opposed to PlayStation or you know something in
1: Sony? Yeah, the thing that inspired me to move on from PlayStation, I think, is the biggest difference, and we've already touched on it a little bit. I was becoming very aware that doing evaluative research is only half of what a user researcher could be doing, and ultimately, by just testing things people have come up with, you're missing a huge amount of opportunity to find problems, to make sure that we're working on the right problem, all the things that, in a government environment, they'll talk about all the time with their very mature research practice. Because of that, I was very interested in seeing, in understanding that part and making sure that I was aware of what discovery research and what generative research looks like, which is why I, I personally then moved outside of games to to look in these industries. Um, so I, I guess that lack of discovery research is one of the differences. There are other differences, though, some some nice ones. Uh, so games, for example, when, when you're running a, a user test, you are bringing in people who are very enthusiastic about games, to see some uh, a sequel to a game that's secret and, and there's a lot of hype around games. And so just the enthusiasm of the participants and the type of research environment you get put in are completely different. One of the games I worked on at PlayStation was SingStar. I don't know if you're aware of it, but it's a karaoke game. Uh, yeah, I've heard of it, yep. Yeah, and to that environment where you've got four friends singing Bohemian Rhapsody as loud as they can while you're the <laughs> moderator trying to keep, keep control of it is completely different to the context you might get in, in governments. Um, there are other differences too. I, I also think the research objectives are, are significantly different, obviously in government and more traditional tech, uh, a lot of what you do is, is very interesting on people and their context and what they're, they're trying to do, uh, and then testing journeys and testing flows which is, is okay, but those research objectives, especially when you get on to testing things that people have made, are often very similar and one that people have encountered before. When I was at PlayStation and with some of the teams I work with now, we're looking at research objectives that are totally unmapped. So, for example, I, I worked on the PlayStation VR headset. It was before there are any sort of commercial VR things out there. And so they were complete unknowns about... How do we make it clear how to walk around in VR? How do we make it clear How to what you can interact with and what you can't interact with? I think games is often at the start of leading at new technology, whether it's VR or augmented reality or, or motion gaming. And because of that, you get chucked very broad and very interesting research objectives to deal with, which again, is a nice challenge. Mm.
0: And I'm interested, at how has uh, COVID and remote working affected games user research? Because you mentioned their secrecy, so I'm imagining there's a slight sort of cloak and dagger and, you know, uh, producers are keen for their wares not to be sort of circulated publicly before they're ready. So in terms of conducting remote research, how does that work with, for games?
1: Yeah, great question. So traditionally, that has been a big problem and a big difference for um, video game development because often the marketing budget is as much as the development budget. It's very important to keep secret, especially because the internet really cares. If the internet sees the tiniest thing, it's going to be everywhere on the internet. That meant in the past, at least, it was a lot of in-person lab research. And it's very traditional in games user research environments to, for example, have a a playtest lab where you've got 80 participants playing on site at the same time. So you can start to answer those quant questions that you'd want to do, you need to answer quant questions, but you can do it in a controlled environment where they can't, uh, they can't bring in their phones, they won't have any evidence of what they've seen. Uh, That means traditionally, they have been very resistant to remote research. Obviously, COVID uh, means that we don't really have a choice with a lot of that now. And so I've seen a couple of approaches to dealing with this. One is technological approaches. So there's a tool uh, called Parsec, I think there are other ones, that uh, it's very similar to the Google Stadia uh, console, where you can have a game running in your lab, but you stream it to players, and they have a controller and they can interact with it, but then they don't have the build, they don't have uh, the thing being tested. And that still obviously has some risk because you could record that, but at least it's minimising the risk of they don't have a copy of the game out in the wild with them. Other techniques that I think teams use: very heavy NDAs, watermarking what's happening on screen, so that you can say if this leaks on the internet, we're going to know that you leaked this on the internet. Uh, but it is a challenge, and for many teams, that can be one of the biggest res- resistances to testing because there's just that fear that it's going to go out on the internet.
0: I'm wondering to what extent that affects user behavior. If if they're you know if you're slapping watermarks and people are signing NDAs and mm. stuff in terms of people you know, in a relaxed, authentic environment chatting about their giving their feedback?
1: I, I think that's a really good point. And yes, it's definitely going to have an effect on, on user behavior, isn't it? Although when we're doing it in lab, obviously through expert moderation and through the fact that you're doing a fun activity that can quickly get forgotten, it's, it's probably there in the background, isn't it? It's going to be impacting their behavior to some extent and, and going to change their mind frame as they go in. Um I don't know the techniques for dealing with that. I guess just a combination of, of great moderation, but also recognising that although this is impacting the study, we as researchers are aware it's impacting the study and perhaps we can take that into account when we're interpreting what we're seeing as well. Yeah.
0: So how do you work then uh, in, in, let's stick with the games world, uh, mm-hmm. with developers, product teams, product managers uh, you know as a user researcher? You know, how, how, how do you work with them day to day? How do you share mm-hmm. what you're learning? What, what's your kind of um, workflow for that?
1: Yeah. So again, perhaps, well, due to a, no- a number of factors, both because of the maturity of, of games, they often don't have embedded research teams, but also because I'm, I'm not embedded with a, a game team, I work with multiple game teams. It's often in, in what you'd recognize as an agency model, so they've realized that they need to test something or they realize they have some hypotheses or have some risks. And a producer will come and ask for a study. Um, will as with any researcher, we'll spend some time understanding the context, talk to them about why did you come with the study now? What have you done before? All those things that you'd want to explore before running a study, but then either run unmoderated testing, um, if we have a, a lab available or the team had a lab available, doing something in-house or, or doing some research moderated with them to answer research objectives and then debriefing it to the team after. Obviously, you know, as, a, as an experienced researcher, that's not the most mature way of working and that's not the end goal because you lose so much context by not being embedded in the team. They. Uh, you can't involve them as an active participant in the research process in the way that you would if you were embedded. But I think that's a, a restriction due to how far usability research and user research has got in, inside games. It makes that a challenge. Mm.
0: And moving on to the, you mentioned at the beginning, a couple of books that you've you've written. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to know um, what prompted you to write those and, and and who's your sort of target audience?
1: Yeah, um, so I've written two books. The uh, first one, Building User Research Teams, explains how to set up a user research team when you don't have a user research team. Um, that was a situation I was in at Parliament where they knew they wanted user research. They'd just hired a whole bunch of designers, product managers, researchers but they as an organization hadn't done this type of thing before and didn't know what it should look like or how it should work i i did that at parliament made a whole bunch of mistakes a whole bunch of things i, I should do differently um I eventually left parliament joined uh, the current tech company I, I work with where it was the same context where they'd heard research was a good thing they wanted to do user research but didn't know what it looked like i, I had done the go still made some mistakes but was slightly better at it but I decided that time I wish I should write down what I'm doing because when I was starting at Parliament all I had to go on was my my memory of how it'd been at PlayStation and how I think it should work but I I was unaware if there was anything that explained here is the process and here's what a team should look like and here's how it should work. Um, That has been very successful. I think the, the book continues to sell well, so I think it's a topic that people find useful and helpful. And partly because I'd enjoyed the experience and had a great reception, I was uh, interested in doing it again. Uh, that led to the second book, which is How to Be a Games User Researcher, which explains for early career people or people, students what skills you have to have and what does the job look like and how do you become a games user researcher. When I was at PlayStation, I was there's a cross company community of of researchers at all the big game studios, PlayStation, Microsoft, Ubisoft, Activision, where they share knowledge and have conferences. I was on their their steering committee for a bit and established their mentoring scheme, which put juniors partnered them with people who were or juniors or students partnered them with people at current game companies and helped them learn these type of things. And so, what I wanted to achieve from the book was just write down a lot of those lessons. What are the type of questions that students have about a career in games user research? What do they need to know before they can successfully get the job? And, and just answer those questions for them. Which again, I've been really happy with the reception to.
0: Mm, fantastic. So, kind of then, how would you summarize? How can, as a user researcher, how can you ensure maximum impact on on the product team you're working with, and by extension, therefore, the end user that you're designing for
1: oh yes Uh, i'm sure you get the same response from from all the user researchers you speak to but what i have seen in my own career and again mistakes that i've made is actually running the study is usually the easy bit and uh, when you're junior or um early in your career you think well I, i ran a great study found some really interesting things i made a lovely report i presented the report everyone clapped and said that was great and and i'm done what I, I recognised due to the lack of impact that that has is actually the, the much harder and the much messier bit is about relationships with the game teams you work with. It's understanding their context and what they need to know because the type of research objectives they're going to bring to you aren't necessarily the, the right research objectives or they might not come to you at times they should be coming to you. So you need to be sat with your teams, understanding what's important to them, identifying what's what they need to know. And then after running the study, you need to be there and around to make sure that research lands. Just because you presented it and and they heard you say it doesn't mean that they've necessarily understood it or it's going to influence their priorities or or their roadmap. And so again, you need to be part of those conversations after in lots of casual and, and catching up ways just to make sure that these things are understood. And again, as an experienced researcher, Um, The bit I've missed obviously is engaging people with that research study and and you know all about this where there's a whole bunch of techniques that we can use as researchers from the obvious like letting people observe our research study to more interactive ways to make people care about this is what uh, the users are saying or users are doing and, and being part of that actual research study process too. Mm, absolutely
0: oh i I agree with all of that and you talked earlier on about kind of having embedded user researchers and Mm. that's one of the lovely things about the way uk government does it is that yes as you say you're embedded within a team so it must be tricky flitting across or sitting across multiple teams and having to dip in and out Um, yeah
1: that definitely has an uh, impact on the amount of impact that you can have i think ultimately the end goal should be embedded researchers in all, all of the teams that we're working with but sometimes that's a journey. You have to show the value of doing it before they, they're bought in enough to get there. Mm.
0: And you talked about mentoring, and I know you've also sort of managed teams as well. What mm-hmm. kind of uh, skills and and uh, personality traits would you say make good user researchers? What kind of things yeah. do you look for?
1: Good question. Um, a couple of things I think are important. So I think the, the obvious one is that idea of curiosity. And not just curiosity about our users and, and what they're doing, but also thinking to ask questions to the teams we're talking to, asking them, why did they come to you with this study request now? What have, What is the context of all of this? It's really important because teams aren't going to come with properly formed research objectives or, or properly formed requests. And you need to understand enough about the team and the people you're working with to be able to make sure your research lands. So I guess curiosity is really important and not being scared to ask questions or to to challenge or to, to ask for context. That can be very difficult for people, especially at a junior level, because it's scary to ask questions. You might think it makes you look naive or like you haven't understood or, or there's, um, yeah, or you're not keeping up. And so I think something that's really important for us as seniors or leads to do is model that behavior to show, hey, we'll ask those, obvious que- those questions that seem obvious, but actually no one has asked, and we will take that hit of, okay, it's, it's okay to, to potentially look stupid because you'll look a whole bunch more stupid if you've just wasted six months doing a bunch of work that's not relevant. Um, so yeah, I guess curiosity is the key, key um, characteristic that I'm after
0: it's that tricky situation sometimes isn't it when you when you share research insights with sometimes senior stakeholders and you get the kind of shoulder shrug and saying well we knew all this it's like well a did you really know all this and B did everyone in your organization know this um, that's
1: true and yeah as, exactly that point about yeah the research study and the research findings are, are great and important and and yes maybe they knew some of it maybe they didn't maybe they un- didn't understand the, the context for the findings either but just the fact that someone knows that and it's written in a report isn't enough for it to influence design decisions. It needs to be understood by everyone making every sort of decision. Mm.
0: So what advice or tips, Steve, would you give someone who wanted to get into user research, in particular, Mm. let's say, games user research?
1: Yeah, so specifically for games, um, I think there's two areas that we talk about on mentoring. There's both developing those research skills um, that can be for people who have the, the potential to do so designing and running a study, interviewing someone, observing someone play games. It can be usability reviews and playing games just reflecting on the usability issues and finding a way of documenting them. And I think that practice of research skills is very important. The games specifically though, games is often a very unique production environment because of a couple of factors. We talked about the time pressure what a game is is often discovered through the development process. It doesn't have an upfront spec that's very clear about here's what it is or here's what we're going to achieve, and it's through a process of iteration and and informal play testing and finding what's fun that you learn what the you learn what you're making as you do it, and so that has some implications on how games are developed. Also, we talked a bit about the marketing budget and how it can be very um, expensive to to develop a game and also to market a game and when you're marketing it, you've got a, a hard launch deadline. You know that has to be out for Christmas 2022 which again creates uh, a lot of pressure in the development process and again has an implication on how games are made. Rather than doing what would recognise in tech as an iterative launch and test and learn you have to have a high quality product on that date. Yeah. My point is all of that means that games are developed in quite a weird way. And so you need to understand enough about that game production process. With mentoring, we talk about why not um, look at conference talks from producers, from designers and see what's important to them. Why not talk to some indie developers who are always um, very enthusiastic and any attention to understand what they're doing and their process and just being exposed to what game development looks like can help you be a very good candidate when you're you're applying for roles, for example. Mm.
0: Here's a question for you, Steve. What do you love about what you do?
1: Oh, yes. Well, I've already touched on it, but I think it is the, the enthusiasm of your participants. So when you're working in, let's say if you were working in Uber, for example, when you're running usability tests or discovery research, I mean, the participants are there because you're giving them 50 quid and it, it's fine, but it's not the most exciting thing they've done that day or that week. Whereas when you are bringing someone into, often into your studio to see a game from a franchise that they've loved for years, and they it has all the characters in, and, and it's it's probably the most exciting thing that person has done that month or that year. And I think you, you feel that in the room. So the participants are very excited. Um, One of the challenges of game development uh, for designers and developers, especially developers, I think, is uh, the wages are are lower than other tech sectors. But the implication of that is everyone is there because they have decided games are for them and they want to work in games. And so your colleagues are also very enthusiastic about what they're doing. And I think it's just an environment where everyone's very passionate about about what they're making and and game development. Mm. Fascinating
0: and and you've touched on various things already, but if there's one thing in particular that fr- frustrates or challenges you about all that that work, what, what would you say it was?
1: Mm. I wouldn't say it's frustrating, but I, I guess the challenge I'm most interested in exploring is there's a lot of practice from the user research wider community about discovery research, about getting teams engaged with the actual research process. Let's analyze together, for example. And I think that hasn't really caught on yet in games. Again, we talked about a time pressure environment. We talked about how games are an artistic medium, and that has some implications on how relevant user needs are. But I, I think there is something there. And a challenge that I'm really interested in exploring is, okay, how do we translate a lot of that best practice from wider tech and wider user research into a game-specific environment? I, I think there's huge potential there, but I, I don't see anyone doing that work and... Uh, I currently and so I'm interested in exploring it in the future mm. too
0: that that leads on to my next question. I was going to ask you where you see your own career going oh uh, yes
1: oh what what a deep question when I to <laughs> um I'm really enthusiastic about what I do. I really love talking about games user research I, I love talking to students who are always very interested so it, the uh, that idea as in my own experience of being able to work on video games is always a very compelling offer and so I'm really interested in exploring how do we make that those careers more accessible to people who are interested in, in working in the games industry. Some of the barriers that to entering games are because it is um, very in demand, there's a lot of competition, that has an implication on often people are applying with a reasonable degree of experience or they've done an internship. but That has issues, doesn't it? Because only people with certain economic backgrounds or or personal lives can do that type of thing. It's also very geographically specific. We talked about how remote research hadn't really caught on and is still not the default for a lot of games research. And again, that's a barrier to to inclusion because you have to move to London or Toronto or, or San Francisco if you want to do this properly as a job. And not everyone's in a position to do that so i think both exploring how do we make games as a career more more open and more understood but also more accessible to a wider range of of people i think are challenges i'm really interested in as well
0: Hmm. fascinating right last thing then steve Mm -hmm. three card challenge so i've got my three cards here uh we have the queen of diamonds the ace of hearts and the jack of spades and we've got either tool technique or trend. So I'll um, hold them up to the camera.
1: Fantastic. Let's go with the ace of hearts.
0: Ace of hearts is a tool. Tool. Fantastic. So what, what's your go-to tool when you're, when you're one you recommend when you're doing um, your work?
1: I am a huge fan and it's not specifically a tool for doing this, but I'm a huge fan of mind maps as a way of capturing notes and analyzing data. I think the current tool I use for that is, is Xmind but I'm not particularly attached to a specific tool, but that process of let's use mind maps for note-taking and for then taking that into analysis is one I've talked about quite a lot, both in mentoring and and before. I I think it helps speed up analysis significantly, helps you spatially capture your thoughts and and go through that process. And again, especially for games where it's a very time-pressured environment, being able to make your analysis process just slightly more efficient, I think, can have a huge impact. So, so much as mind maps for tools.
0: That that's really interesting, isn't it? Because I the analysis process often I find this with uh, sometimes you know, newbies in this world that they mm-hmm. underestimate kind of how long it takes to do mm-hmm. and how long you should allow for it. Um, but particularly when you run you know quite a few interviews and you've got you know hours of insight to sort of wrap all that up and make sense of it and, and share it with the team. Uh, As you say, if you can do that faster and more efficiently, then then that's great.
1: I agree. What's really nice about mind maps is you can predefine based on your discussion guide what the topics we're going to talk about are and then do a bit of that aggregation live. So you say, okay, every time we're going to talk about um, what games I've been playing recently, we'll put it in this section. And then when you come to analysis, you've saved at least half an hour of just putting all your notes about that in the same place. Uh, Yeah, it really helps. Fantastic. Right, next two cards. Let's go with Queen of Diamonds. Queen of Diamonds is a trend. Okay, I'm going to describe a trend I would like to see more of, and that is the creation of entry-level roles for for user research. What I see in games is that, as we talked about, it's a low-maturity environment. There were only be looking they'll be looking for their first user researcher and because of that they'll hire a senior user researcher and so there are many teams out there who only have a single um user researcher and and a very senior level and it's there's no junior roles out there so a trend i would like to see more of is the creation of junior games user research roles and the support required to make those roles successful uh, otherwise, in a few years, we'll just run out of people who can be user researchers in, in these companies. Interesting. Last one. Uh, I, I'll i pick the jack. Which is? <laughs> technique. Oh, cool. um, For technique, I think something that I picked up at PlayStation but I've tried to take forward into every team I've led since and the roles I've been in is the process of reflection and iteration at the end of a, a research study. So just taking an hour at the end of each individual study to look back, not at the research findings, but that research process and look at what went well in prep that we should take forward, what didn't go well that we need to address, same for the actual data collection and the analysis, and then turning that into actions as a team that you can pick up and iterate on. I I think that idea of reflecting on your research practice and then making steps to improve it the next time you do it means that wherever you start as a researcher and whatever mistakes you're making is fine because you'll get better next time. And I think that's the secret to creating a successful research team is just that reflection and and iteration process. That's fascinating.
0: I like that. So it's a kind of a retro, not on Mm -hmm. because you know i work in like like many of us do in sort of two-week agile sprints and we have a sort of team retro at the end but an actual mini retro just on the research practice you're doing
1: yeah and with doing that with if you you're lucky enough to work with other researchers even if they're not on the same team just that process of reflecting and talking through here's how i approached it can and here's what i should do differently can lead to creating different templates creating checklists Doing something differently and, and just growing your research practice. Mm.
0: And final question, Steve. What would you say is the biggest challenge and obviously the flip side of that the biggest opportunity facing user researchers at the moment?
1: Oh, okay. Great point. Um I think that challenge is making we talked about making sure the findings are understood and that we understand the context of our team. And I see researchers having this this as an issue where they think as as we talked about when you you run a study and you've made your report that's the end of our job i think the challenge for the industry is recognizing that actually that that's only half of the loop doing the running the study the other half of the loop is making sure it's landed working out what the team needs to do next and helping them learn how to do it next and i think that isn't talked enough about or recognized enough about as a core part of user research skill set and so I think the challenge from that would be let's do more on that. Let's understand what that looks like. Let's talk about best practice for that. Let's make sure that we're we're teaching those skills or we're helping people build on those skills. And so exploring how do we work with our teams, I think, is, is a challenge and an opportunity. Fantastic.
0: What a great way to end. Um, Steve, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much. Um, final quick thing. How can people find out more about you?
1: Yes, yeah, so I'm very active on Twitter, which I think is at Steve underscore Bromley. Um, some other places to look could be stevebromley.com, which I think links to everything I, I do. Or if you're specifically interested in games user research, gamesuserresearch.com will have uh, links to well both the book we talked about, but every month I send out here's some lessons about running user research in games, uh, which people might be interested in as well.
0: Fantastic. And I'll put links to those in the show notes as well. So listeners can, can, can find that. But um, that's been wonderful. Great talking to you. Thank you so much indeed.
1: Yeah, thank you, Mike.
0: Thanks for listening to the Understanding Users podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment wherever you're listening and feel free to share it more widely. And feel free, of course, to drop me a line with any feedback via LinkedIn or my website, researchable.uk. Links are in the show notes. Join me again next time. I'll be talking to another experienced UX professional and asking them to share their wisdom, tips and knowledge with me. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centered.